United were a few minutes away from making it 10 wins in a row before Michael Elise's stoppage time free kick turned it into 9 wins and a draw against Crystal Palace. On this week's Devils in the Details, we discussed the tactical elements that allowed United to succeed in the Manchester Derby and those that held them back from making it 10 out of 10 against Palace. Case, tough ending there, but spirits are surely high for the rest of the season after this winning run? Yeah, in the aggregate, I think they should be. Really frustrating result. Really, really frustrating result. And and it doesn't make it feel any better that, um, you know, Casemiro won't be available on Sunday. Like, really, been a great run. The Derby win is huge, but it's tough not to be a little gloomy today. Yeah, it was a difficult result, and... I'll get on to a little bit more about Casemiro and the Crystal Palace match later on, but I want to wind it back and talk about the Derby to start with. After my celebratory Saturday, um, as you know, I was with a friend of the pod, Brent, for the game, which was a lot of fun. Um, I had to watch back the game to figure out what really happened. And what I saw wasn't really what I expected to see. I was expecting to see a lot of Man City playing through United and then struggling to create chances. But what I really saw was Man City struggling a lot to play through United. I actually thought they were really poor in this game. Yeah, I agree. I mean, both in the in the derby and in this past match, we continued we we continued our run, you know, of being really solid defensively. Uh, we really haven't given up big chances since uh, since the the Villa match back in November. Um, so. So yeah, in, in that respect, I think City, we really jammed up the match against City, made it difficult for them to progress the, the ball, especially centrally. Um, and, and in that way, I think we were successful. I, I, it, was a, it was a good performance. I, I really, you know, the offside the, the offside or no offside call aside, I think we deserved at least a point in that match um, based on performance. Well, United had more shots and... Honestly, we spent a chunk of last week and a chunk of the last few months talking about the essentially leaving the fullbacks free in the press. And it couldn't have been more obvious to me this game that that's what United were trying to do, right? Funnel City into wide areas and then stifle their fullbacks from playing unless they play really quickly. And City played through or played right into United's hands for a lot of this game. Like I felt like they were just playing the ball to their center backs, trying to push it into midfield, failing to push it into midfield, pushing it wide taking too long to create a combination out wide that would get them out of build-up. And that cycled for long stretches of the game. Um, Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's a good performance. I think United, I would say most of this game, the good elements were defined by the out-of-possession. I don't think we need to go too deep into it because we've gone pretty deep into this out-of-possession approach that I think translates pretty well. I agree. I, I don't think I, there was like this inevitable sense of City coming and they were going to score because they really created no chances um, in that match except for the Grealish goal. Um, which again, I think is, it's, a, it's a testament to how good we've been out of possession. As much as we criticize the fact that we don't go fullback to fullback in this match, I think it actually played to our advantage because it forced City to kind of play stagnantly. They could They could play vertically um, from their center backs to Rodri, but then Rodri had to go sideways. 
to one of the fullbacks, and it just restarted this stale possession process over and over and over again. And yeah, I, I think it was a bad performance from City, frankly, not just a good performance from us. But anytime you hold City under 0.8 xG, which I think we did, not to reduce the game down to expect goals, but they, they were very stale. And this is a good attacking side, so you definitely have to be happy with that. Yeah, um, let's talk a little bit about the goal breakdown because I think that also comes from what was a, what created the good pressing sort of in the first half, which was the fact that I thought the wingers, um, and you pointed this out to me, was the wingers until Rashford's injury were very good out of possession, which allowed United to stifle City's fullbacks uh, on the ball. And I think the goal sort of comes from a breakdown in wide areas from both wingers. Um it's Rashford losing De Bruyne in the crossing situation, and then uh, Bruno allowing a 3v2 to be created at the back post with Wambasaka and Varane. Yeah, so I think the key thing in the goal that we conceded uh, is the first part, which is um, Rashford leaving that lane open. Uh, after, after he got hurt, he, his effort out of possession just went down the drain, which is understandable. He was hurt, um, and ultimately paid off. You know, he won the game, but... That will be punished in the future if it continues to happen. Yeah, your wingers need to defend. This is something that we've been saying all season, but it's really something that we've been saying before the podcast even existed. Um, Especially in these matches where you're not going to have a lot of the ball. um, You need to get a ton. You need to prevent overloads. You need to make sure there's no gaps uh, in the final third, and that comes down to the wingers tracking. Uh, As for... As for the overload of the back post, yeah, there was an overload of the back post, but I also think the defending broadly was just bad there. However, I'm of the opinion that the the first mistake is usually the biggest mistake. Um, and so in this instance, the first mistake is, is, is leaving that lane open for the ball to get played to De Bruyne. Yeah. Now, obviously, I think Rashford is... At least in pre Veghorst United, I think you can make a case that Veghorst changes this a little bit. But Rashford has been the only material, consistent goal threat. And for that reason, even though he gets injured, he kind of has to stay on the pitch. In general, I feel like the injury is a clearly impactful uh, moment in you know Rashford's inability to track players out of possession after that. And... I, I just feel like it's one of those, ideally, you don't have to play these players who are injured. Typically, what you would see is like a mental error where they don't read the run properly. I think that's what we've been, we've been talking about a lot from the wingers this season, besides Anthony, is the fact that they're still learning to read the cues of the system, when they have to follow the man, uh, which man they have to follow, who they have to be marking. Uh, but in this case, it seemed to me like Rashford knew he had to be on De Bruyne, at least to some extent, um, but the physical fatigue and, and possibly pain played a role. So I think that's worth noting. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying he should have been taken off. Um, or rather, I understand why he wasn't. I think I, if it had been me, and maybe this is the reason I'm not the manager, I would have taken him off. But yeah, I mean, it paid off. So tough to criticize that. Um but at the same time, in the post-match press conference, 
something that was touched upon was the fact that United lost control um, and how that was unacceptable. So I, I don't think I don't think it was a trade off that um, that we're generally going to see being accepted going forward uh, at any level, e- even even it. Even given that it was working out, I don't think that was how Tanakh imagined the second half playing out. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about United's goals. Um, so the first one, I mean, it's pretty much just two good progressive balls from Wambasaka and Casemiro and then a sort of contested offside situation. Uh, but I, I wanted to focus a little bit more on the second one because I thought it was a really interesting play from Garnacho. Um, firstly, he curves his run to stay on side, which is really nice. And then the second thing I think is interesting is I remember saying during the first time watching the game, it's really easy for Garnacho to just isolate the fullback 1v1, or, or it was Ake, isolate Ake 1v1, and then hit the ball into Ake, lose the ball. Um, but watching it back, I realized he actually did do that. He isolated Ake 1v1, and then hit it into Ake. And then when he gets it back, it's sort of like a second chance. And then he checks as if he's going to hit the ball again, and then goes onto his left foot, and that's what creates the goal. Which I thought was a really good piece of play from Garnacho. Um, yeah, I think Garnacho has consistently exceeded my expectations. Huge in this match. Even on the first goal, you pointed this out. He's crashing the back post like his life depends on it, which um, is refreshing. I think, and it's way more important than I think people realized. Um, and it'll pay off. He's going to score goals. He's going to he's going to be involved um, in goal scoring movements because of that intensity and that pace that he brings. Um, yeah, great cameo from Garnacho. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that moment where Garnacho hits the long ball to McTominay in the Aston Villa game as like a key Garnacho moment. And I actually think those types of moments so far have been the outlier from him. Like I, if you Definitely. told me what I would have expected to see from Garnacho, it would be like him getting on the ball and constantly running at teams and trying to, and trying to sort of cross the ball or, or get it into the box. But that hasn't really been the case. I think what we're going to see is that Garnacho is really going to be dependent in his career on being able to get high quality shots off. Um, if Agreed. he wants to be a first teamer at this level, he's going to need to be a consistent goal scorer. Um, and I think runs like that are really what turns an average goal scorer into a consistent goal scorer. So it's good to see him making them at least sometimes. Um, nice to see Rashford get be lurking on that last line for the second goal, staying in dead space, letting the, the move come back to him and getting that, that really high quality shot. Ultimately, though, I don't think we're going to be seeing a lot of him at center forward going forward, and I don't think we should, so maybe not that meaningful, but, uh, you know, it's a nice move. I have to say, I, my mind is very fixated on this this Palace match, so it's tough for me to organize my thoughts with regard to City right now. But yeah, I think we've covered the key points. Awesome. Yeah, I think the last thing I wanted to talk about here was Anthony. So I think United's left side was pretty much the main source of build-up throughout this game. And out of possession, I thought City got most of the joy that they did get from the left, from their left, which is United's right. Um, I really think we saw this week with these two matches, even though United won against City and drew against Palace, how important Antony is, both in and out of possession. 
Um, structurally, everything on the right side just looks strange without him. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that as to discredit Bruno, because I think Bruno's largely performed the same, both on the right and in the middle. But what he does just is not what Anthony does from the right wing. Um, and I think it became extremely apparent really quickly against Palace that United looked better on the right side with Anthony in there. Yeah, we, we, I think we've hit this point, all these points before with Anthony, but if you want to have complete width, you want to have replicability when you move the ball from right to left and left to right, um, and which which is to say be able to create similar symmetrical symmetric moves on both sides, which I do think is important. I don't think that's just an aesthetic thing. Um, you need to have Anthony on the field because uh, of what his profile allows for. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's that much more to add there. Um, pertinent again, if this becomes a debate, uh, we'll revisit. But I think for now, status quo on that. All right. I think that's a good transition point to Palace. And I can tell you're itching to uh, make my ears bleed about the draw that we've just witnessed. So for context, the game ended about two hours ago. We are uploading this day after. I think United in this match paid for a lot of the mistakes that we've been pointing out over the course of this winning run. Uh, in that they really struggled to dominate the second half against a Palace team that they're not good, I don't think, but they're not, they don't play like a bottom half side tactically. Um, they build from the back. They largely press high, I think. Um, they look to essentially play closer to what you would see from a top half possession team than a team like. Forest, Bournemouth, Wolves from that winning run. And I think because of that, you saw them challenge United in certain areas that they were less challenged in those games. But I also think United made mistakes in those games that were more costly in this game. And I mean, again, the press was kind of similar. Palace were creating space from their fullbacks. I feel like the interesting thing about Crystal Palace is that their good on-ball players are actually their center backs. And if I were to watch this game back, which, again, we haven't had the chance, I would say one thing I would watch for is whether the um, the winger marks closer to the center back than the fullback in this match. So we have the striker on one center back. Is the winger, the corresponding winger, on the second center back or closer to the fullback? That's something we've been talking about, how in some games, you know, they're switching between those two players. So I would I would watch to see whether, you know, Rashford, for example, is on Chris Richards. Um, but largely, I think the more interesting issues that we've talked less about are the issues in possession, um, that have prevented United from comfortably controlling these games for 90 minutes. And in particular, I think a lot of United's key players, especially when they're not on it on the ball, and especially when they have to play against a press, I think they're prone to giving the ball away and making poor decisions. And I think that was kind of the, at least for me, the underlying cause behind the inability to control this game was just simply not being able to keep the ball in stretches where it was either decision-making or facing a press. Totally agree. Um, I think before I can touch on what I want to touch on with regard to that, we got to rewind to the first half. 
um, which I think was good, right? I think we, you'd agree. He pretty good. Yeah, exactly. N- not like a standout performance. It would look a lot uglier without the goal. Um, yeah, I think chance but, creation was a bit dry. But other than yeah. that, I thought it was a pretty good half. Specifically, the reason I say I think it was good is because I thought Palace were honestly really bad in this match. We conceded space that they could have taken up, uh, and they didn't take it up well, and we, we got the ball back really, really easily, consistently. There really was no threat from Palace, um, except for one move in the first half. That said, we didn't really maintain possession well ourselves in, in, in that half. It was ugly. It was a little transition-based. I'd say, like, by far our best move was the goal-scoring move. Um, yeah. There were a couple other moments where, you know, a better ball might have created a big chance. But ultimately an acceptable half. Nothing wrong with it. Yeah, let me wind back a little when I say Palace play like a top half side and how that actually sort of matters in the context of this game. Because I'm not insinuating that they're better tactically than bottom half sides. I'm What I'm saying is that they play in such a way that what they aim to do is create transitional moments against you by forcing you to make mistakes as opposed to waiting for you to make mistakes and breaking. And... Yep they tend to concede in transitional moments. And I think that's largely what we saw, right? Palace pressed high, Palace lost the ball, United played him behind. Um, United had the ball in build-up, Palace tried to win it high up and play him behind United. And that's more like what you would see in a game like the Manchester Derby than what you would see in a game like United versus Bournemouth, Forest, Wolves. And I think it's really easy to look at Palace and they're standing in the table and their underlyings and say, you know, this game's likely to be really similar to those games from before in the winning run. But I think what's really interesting about Crystal Palace and Leeds as opponents, Leeds coming up in a couple uh, in a couple matches, I think, is that they more look to press high and focus on transitional moments and forcing them um, than they and, and they tend to concede more transitional moments than those other teams, and that makes the game different in nature. Yep. Um, so I'll totally let you go agree. on. Now. Yeah, totally agree. Um, ultimately, however. I think Palace played poorly. So I agree that they, they created different conditions for us to exploit. Yes. And that's the part separate, where I say, like, they play like a top-half team, but they're not as effective executing. As yeah, they're team. not executing like a top-half team. And there's reason to do that, because it gives you a higher ceiling if you can come to execute at a high level, but they aren't. Anyway, all of which is to say, the first half was all right. If you if we'd played in the second half the way we played in the first half, we would have won the match comfortably, I think. But then in the second half, after we'd gone up a goal late in the first half, we did something that I think, you know, every team does, which is um, you get a go, you go a goal up. The other team realizes they need to, you know, take on more of the initiative in the match, so they have more of the ball, and you look to score a second to pad the lead through counterattacking, which listen is not a bad approach. However. Where I think things went awry for us, and you already said this, is most of the moments where we won the ball back, there was not an immediate option to play forward into space, but we still tried to do it anyway. And it cost us because we let the game get really sloppy. We didn't didn't control possession, which frankly... 
I understand why you might see possession in certain moments and drop deeper when you're leading. However, when you win it back, that's no excuse to just force the ball forward consistently and be sloppy. If there's no forward option, you should play backwards, slow the, the match down because that's what benefits you. Um, when you're winning, the current game state benefits you more than the opposition. So there's no reason to rush anything. And I found that we were rushing. And specifically, it was our best players. I would say probably our three best players this season have been Bruno, Rashford, and Casemiro. And I would say they were the three who were most at fault um, for sort of this game management issue in the second half where we're pushing, we're pushing, we're pushing. As soon as we get the ball, we're flicking around the corner. We're trying to, you know, uh, hold the ball for too long or, or worse yet, holding the ball not long enough and trying some Hollywood pass um, that's ultimately not productive and prevents you from managing the game because a, a really, you know, topsy-turvy match when you're already winning doesn't benefit you. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot there. Firstly, closing out the game on a lead. Um, there are a lot of extenuating circumstances here. I feel like one for sure is the fact that United played their first team four, four days ago and Ten Hag is going to roll out the first team against Arsenal in four days. And he also played the first team against Crystal Palace. And I feel like in the second half, when you're leading, it's easy to have this mindset of like, let's survive this. And then the first team rolls out against Arsenal again. I don't think it's a deliberate choice to go, let's let them attack and break on the counter. To me, I feel I like agree. it was more of a palace, again, assert themselves on other teams as a possession side. They had more incentive to attack after going down 1-0. And United faltered in their ability to control the match, which is what led to mostly playing on the counter because they were not controlling possession. Now, why weren't they controlling possession? And that's the part where you talked about, you know, key players in in specific moments. Because I think um, it, it's really easy to look at the match and go, oh, United subbed on, you know, uh, McTominay and Fred and... Um, and Garnacho, and they didn't deliver because after that United faltered in the match. I don't think that's what happened. I think the first team players failed to control this match. And I think their actions in possession failed to control the match as much as they possibly could have, even in the first half. I think a lot of people are probably listening to this and thinking, the goal came from a free kick in the 91st minute. What are you guys talking about? Why aren't you talking about what led to the free kick? But really what I think the issue was, and this is something you, I'm going to, I'm sort of setting you up here because you were about to touch on something earlier and now I think it's the time to touch on it. The mistake here wasn't conceding. You're going to concede in matches, even when you dominate, even when you barely concede chances. The issue was not putting ourselves in a position where we were more likely to score again than they were to get an equalizer. Ten Hag said that, for what it's worth. I don't know if you saw it. I'm not he, surprised. He usually he literally said has that. a handle on Because, yeah, so the interviewer asked him about whether he was mad about the penalty call, and he said, essentially said, we shouldn't be putting ourselves in a position where we're, where we're relying on the refs to help us win the match. 
we should be we should be putting ourselves in a position where we go up 2-0 and this match is over. Stuff like the free kick happens. It happens to the best teams. That chance has like even even after the mistake, that chance has like an 8% whatever. It's it's like a trivial percent chance of going in, right? It's not even 8. It's like it's, it's, it's low. It's a brilliant free kick. That stuff happens. The way you prevent that is by controlling the match a possibly scoring a second goal b not allowing them in your half at all depriving them of the ball not wasting opportunities to possess the ball to try and create a chance that you don't need to create and and we've been talking about this right we've we've we we spoke of this a lot against bournemouth when united had i think it was a 1-0 or a 2-0 lead they started making the game super transitional win the ball back bomb it forward try to hit rashford on the break try and score more goals taking bad shots, losing the ball in situations where they don't need to, where what they should be doing is controlling the match, seeking out extremely high probability chances, and then if it's not a high probability chance, just keep the ball. If you can't create a high probability chance safely, don't try and create the chance, right? Just keep the ball. On an individual level, which is, again, what you talked about, I think what we've seen, and we saw this a little bit against City, but more against Palace, I think, was individuals that we've talked about possibly struggling under a press now beginning to struggle under a press. Firstly, which was Varane and Casemiro, right? To me, Varane looked really uncomfortable in this match. Casemiro looked really uncomfortable in this match. Um, A lot of people were fixated on the yellow card. Casemiro has to commit that foul. And the reason why he has to commit that foul is because... He receives the ball in build-up. He's goal. not press-resistant. Back to goal. He's not press-resistant. So he's going to try and release that ball as quickly as possible. So he plays a blind, and this is something we said really early about Fred, he plays a one-touch, blind progressive pass into the open space, and Bruno can't control the pass. And then he has to take the yellow card, right? That is a sign of a team that can't reliably play out of a press, or in this case, a player who cannot reliably play out of a press. And long-term, I don't think Casemiro will be playing in that role. I don't think that's the intent. I think... Just so people know, I think probably very few people who are listening to this consistently watched Real Madrid in the league during the period when Casemiro was with Real Madrid. Real Madrid hid Casemiro in possession. Zinedine Zidane pushed Casemiro really high up the pitch in build-up phases. And it's not because Casemiro is bad technically. He's excellent technically. Anyone who's been watching these matches can see he's got incredible ball-striking technique. But, and this is a really important but, and it's a really important distinction, he doesn't like receiving the ball with his back to goal with a man on his back. He's not comfortable in that situation because he doesn't have the agility and the ball control to dribble out of those situations. And so his crutch, and Aaron, you you mentioned this, episode two, if you go back um, after the Brighton match, we talked about how every midfielder in this team has a crutch that they use um, when they they come under pressure with a player on their back. Uh, At that time, we talked about how Fred will play blindly around the corner, um, hit passes without looking. McTominay will sort of bunker down and hold the ball like a like a like a striker might, you know, widen his legs out and just sort of protect. Pogba um, did that too for what it's Pogba worth. did that too. Yep. Um and 
Bruno will sort of do these one-touch flicks or try to bomb the ball or dummy it. Casemiro plays passes blind around the corner, just like Fred does. He's better at it because he's better technically than Fred is, so he gets caught out less. But that's just something we saw here today. And this isn't like a... This doesn't mean Casemiro is not incredible. Casemiro is our best midfielder. He's the best midfielder we've had in a decade. But it's a situation where he's not world-class, and you put him in that situation enough times, and he will do things that are not world-class. Frankly, I think taking the yellow in any other situation where it's not going to get him a suspension, we probably would have applauded because we were 1-0 up in a game that we needed to win. And it was a really dangerous situation where if, where if you let him dribble into the box, he, he could get a shot off. So I really don't even mind the foul that much. What I do mind, or rather what is going to bite us, bite us in the ass going forward, is putting players in positions where they're not comfortable. Yeah, Even great players. There's been a lot of conversation about Casemiro's ability on the ball, I think in the last two weeks or so, where people have been, you know, posting these comps of him making these phenomenal passes that are that hit like 45 yards, and he hits someone in behind, or he hits a winger, and, you know, people are saying, they were saying Casemiro wasn't good on the ball, which no one was saying. In general, I think it is a huge weakness for a player to not be good on the ball under no pressure at all, right? If you if if teams can give you space and you cannot exploit the fact that you have space to play into and time on the ball, then you are then not teams good are going to, to give you space. Football. Yeah. Yes. I, I, right? I, I, this is like the those between... the players who can't execute technically when they're not under pressure facing forward, facing the opposition goal are bad players. Those players shouldn't be playing for Man United. They probably shouldn't even be playing Premier League football. Yeah, and that's the difference between... So, like... And and just so we're we're clear, because I don't want to be misquoted here, Casemiro is not one of those players. Yes, Casemiro (laughs) is not, right? So, an example, right? Wilfred Ndidi, not a good player on the ball, even if you don't put him under pressure. That rules out his contention to play for a top club. And... It's not because you can't have players who are only good defensively in your midfield. It's because you cannot have players who other teams want to have the ball in your midfield. Casemiro is not one of those players. If you give Casemiro time and space on the ball, he will punish you. He even even if you don't teams. give him time. Like, he's, he's, yeah. he's got good execution off of one touch. I, I don't even think that's so much a problem. It's this very specific situation but important situation when you're playing against a press where he's receiving the ball, he doesn't know what's behind him, or he does, and doesn't have confidence in his ability in that very specific situation that causes him to take up, you know, these these suboptimal behaviors that cost you. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, ultimately this event wasn't that consequential in this match. It's more consequential for the next match, but... Something that we finally saw come up when we've been, you know. I don't think it was consequential. I don't think the yellow card was that consequential in this match. But I think in general, Casemiro's struggles facing a press were consequential in this match. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, okay, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people will say, you know, you guys are stats guys, right? Casemiro scores really high in the progressive pass metrics. What's the issue here? A couple things. Number one, 
pass accuracy. I don't typically use pass accuracy, right? And Bruno's pass accuracy will be 70, 75% every game. But that's just the way Bruno plays. He's an attacking midfielder. He's trying to create. Largely, and like there are exceptions, but largely, Casemiro is not a creative player. If you see many or most top players who attempt the same types of passes as Casemiro, um, or, or have the same in-possession impact as Casemiro from completed passes, they're completing closer to 90% of their passes. In this game, Casemiro completed something like 76-77% of his passes. That's too low for a defensive midfielder who's facing a press who is not dominating the game of possession. And I think that's a product of, like, one, long-term, you're not going to have Casemiro receiving with his back to goal against the press. Number two, Casemiro make, was making suboptimal decisions on the ball in this match where he was trying too hard to create a chance, play the ball in behind, play the Hollywood pass that looks great when it's completed and creates a goal when it's completed, but most of the time loses the ball and in the aggregate hurts your ability to dominate the game. And that's where I think Casemiro's in-possession ability, that's the caveat, right? And if you go back to episode four, right? Om said all of this. Like, it's actually incredible if you go back how spot on Om was. He called it straight up. He was like, the first few months, he's going to be a big upgrade on your midfielders because he can execute when he is not pressed, right? McTominay can't. Casimir's going to be a huge upgrade. And then after those four months, people are going to start to see, you know, when Casimir is pressed a little bit more, when teams start to target Casimir, if he's playing a key role in buildup, he's going to struggle, right? And Om pointed out solutions to that, which were, you know, number one, actually, one of the things was like, his decisions are, you kind of just have to accept that as it is, and he's going to make some mistakes, and that's just part of his game, but he's worth it defensively. And number two was having tactical workarounds to using Casemiro and buildup, which is possible. That's fine. I just think that's something we have to note long-term because a lot of people have kind of gotten this idea that Casemiro is invincible on the ball, which is what Om said would happen. And then, or just in general, that's just not the case, right? That's not, that's not his game and that's fine. But I think it showed up in this match and United paid for it. I think that's enough on Casemiro. I think we've we've, we've covered that with Casemiro. Um, yeah. Let's talk about Bruno. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought he was good in the first half. I think Bruno is probably... This is going to sound like really tangential, but I promise I'm going to bring it back to the point, the broader point that we're making about this match. I think Bruno is probably the best player in the world who's not good at dribbling. Why is that relevant, Case? That's relevant because a lot like Casemiro, when he gets the ball, he, he has incredible technical ability, and so he looks for he looks to play passes forward, looks to be creative, looks to um, you know create threat. But when there isn't something to play forward, he's almost got it's almost like he has a clock in his head. Because I don't think he's comfortable with the idea of somebody putting pressure on him when, once he's gotten into space. Which and might so be he, true, by the way. Which, yeah, literally, I, I'm, I, yeah, this isn't even, um, 
that's I don't mean that in a slanderous manner. I, I think he probably actually does think that way. How that influences his game is that a lot of the time, you know, he's he gets into space in these like semi counterattacking situations. There isn't a ball for him to play forward, and he plays forward anyway because he doesn't want to turn around um, and play backwards. And it, I don't even think it just comes from like you know I, I think I've talked before on this podcast about how different players have different ideas of where goals come from, um, and I think Bruno has an idea that you know playing fast is where goals come from. And he's not necessarily wrong, but I think there's a second thing that's influencing what makes him so wasteful at times, and it's this discomfort with uh, a style of play, a team-wide style of play that places emphasis on patience. And it's not because he's just impatient for no reason, it's because he's impatient because of this deficiency in his game. And I think he shares this with Casemiro. And I think that creates a midfield that's like a little bit bad at game management in certain ways. Casemiro sort of makes up for this by being really good at other aspects of game management. He's like elite all-time tactical fouler. He's like incredible at winning the ball back when midfield gets disorganized. So you take those things. But like, I think Bruno is a disastrous tempo setter in terms of knowing when to play the ball forward and when not to. And I think... At, Anyone yeah, wait, that. wait, wait. Can I? I, th- I feel like tempo setter is one of the most overused midfield terms. Uh, in, yeah, in I'm, sort of I'm about way. to explain you, what I mean. Yeah. I'm not talking about like some abstract idea of rhythm. I don't really care about that. What I do care about is understanding game state and knowing when the risk reward is going to is in favor of taking tons of risk versus when it's not recognizing when it's not and then changing your game accordingly in a way that affects the players around you because you know if Bruno keeps on bombing balls forward every time we get into any transition opportunity Rashford's going to keep on making runs forward every time we get into a transition opportunity and so is Anthony um, and that's going to stretch your wingers higher. Um, and it means you're going to have fewer oppositions for ball retention. And it also means if you give up the ball, which you're going to when you're bombing the ball forward consistently, you're going to be more exposed. Um, and so that's what I mean by tempo. I basically mean the decisions you make on the ball affect how the rest of the team behaves. And that's not just the case for Bruno. It's the case for everyone. But Bruno gets the ball more than other players. And so it means he has more influence on these things. Yeah. So this is a super general, abstract way of looking at it. But basically what you're saying is, your definition of tempo is this. A player has the ball. What can they do with the ball from the options they have that maximizes the probability of winning the match? And players with good tempo management, by extension, are players who are good at making the right decision to maximize their team's probability of winning the match when they have the ball. It's not about how slow or how fast you play. It's about... And and consequentially, based on the decision you make, it might make the game slower or faster, which is why it's called tempo. But what it is about is what decision is correct at each given moment in time the ball is received. And Bruno 
whether it's because of the fact that he does not believe rightfully or wrongfully that he can that he can play out of pressure or turn back into pressure um or change the body orientation that he has when he receives the ball um reliably in premier league level situations or it's just his belief of where goals come from for either of those two reasons he does not have good tempo management in this sense and then casemiro doesn't have good tempo management in this sense but he has good game management in other areas. Yeah, we're almost defining two different things that are very closely related. Um, and I hate to, you know, labor this discussion with buzzwords because um, I, I don't want to, you know, just get into. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's present a quick definition for both tempo management yeah. and game management and move on. Yeah. Let's say game management is, you know, all of the things that go into controlling controlling yeah controlling a, like controlling a match especially when you're winning because i think game management becomes that's when it really becomes relevant um because risk reward changes so much when you're drawing or when you're losing when you're a big team you just want to score like that's really what you care about once you're winning that that changes and so the things that go into game management are like you know passing decisions, but also um, what kinds of passes you're looking for um, in terms of are you trying to, you know, play vertically, play sideways, play back. Um, and then it's also, you know, tactical fouls. Um, how costly would it be for us to give up this chance at this point in the game? It would be really costly to give up a big chance in the 90th minute of a game you're winning one nothing. It would be less costly to give that chance up in the 30th minute, because you have more time to change for the team to change its approach and try to get another goal. All of that goes into game management. Tempo management is sort of a subset of that. The way we're defining it, and again, we're being very convenient about the way we're just trimming these terms to mean what we want them in the context of this podcast. Tempo management is specifically what you do with the ball and what passes you choose and how that affects the behavior of your teammates. Let's say that. Perfect. Were there other aspects of tempo or game management then that you wanted to talk about? Because we kind of focused a lot on Casemiro, Bruno, and to a lesser extent, Varane. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people I think were frustrated with Rashford in this match. Um, He sort of was, to me, he was what Rashford always is, which is like our most talented attacker clearly our most effective attacker this season, but then just tunnel vision. Like, so like a couple of times in the second half, he got the ball in transition opportunities where if he just released a pass, the, you know, the, the fate of the attacking move would have no longer been in, at his feet, which is why he didn't, but it would have made the situation far more threatening. I remember in particular one opportunity where he got the ball on the left, he's driving with the ball, and, you know, it's good for him to dribble. It's good for him to drive the ball that, you know, disorganizes defenses. But there's a certain point at which he could have very easily released Anthony on the right. And instead of doing it, he just dribbled into a crowd on the left. That stuff drives me nuts. That drives me nuts. And I don't know. I don't think he's ever going to cut it out of his game. And I don't really want to harp on how Rashford contributed to this. Because, honestly, I don't think Rashford was, like, that important here. But this is just something that he does even when he's in incredible form. 
He just makes terrible decisions sometimes because he has so much faith in his ability for a good reason. Yeah, pretty much agree on that too. Um, let's talk about Veghorst's debut. I, I thought this was like, I don't think it was a stunning performance. I thought it was pretty much what you expect Veghorst to be. Like, I think this is what we can come to expect from him in games. And in spite of that, I think it was super impactful in how United were able to, I mean, in the few situations where they really did penetrate the final third, why they were able to create in those situations. Um, his link plays very good. I think we get a lot of that with Martial, but more importantly, um, and especially related to the first goal, his movement opens space up, whether for himself or others. Yeah, uh, I thought this is like a solid six and a half out of ten from him. Um, agree about the movement that the goal we scored today was. I really liked that goal actually, um, and his movement was massively impactful. He, you know, he did exactly what I think we miss when we have Martial on the pitch, which is he just makes kind of whether he intends for them to be selfless or not, I'm not sure, but he makes runs that wind up having really positive knock-on effects for the rest of the team because he just is consistently dragging the offense, the, the opposition defensive line deep. Um, and what that does is you can either, you know, play him and he's going to have a tap in if you can get the ball to him, though it might be difficult. Um, but regardless of whether you can get the ball to him, he's going to create space behind him. Uh, Cause you just have to collapse your defensive shape. So violently when you have a player that big, um, moving with that much commitment consistently uh, into the face of goal. Uh, and that's how the goal happened. Uh, you know, Erickson gets played by Rashford. He's in a crossing position. Um, and Bruno has that space for the cutback simply because, you know, there's a big body pushing the defensive line deep. Um, yeah. Hopefully we see more of that uh, going forward. But, uh, yeah. I was very excited about that when it happened in match. But looking back at it, I have trouble summoning the same excitement knowing how the game ended. Yeah, just to be a little bit more specific there, I feel like United have a lot of what I would describe as Zone 14 players. And Zone 14 is a dated analytics term that basically refers to the area from the width of the two boxes just outside the box, right? So when I say United have... Zone 14 players in, you know, Bruno, Anthony, Sancho, to a lesser extent, Rashford. What I mean is these players like to get into that zone and in whatever way that they do and make their largest impact on the match from that area, right? Bruno likes to get in that zone and create chances and create shots. Anthony likes to cut into that area and use his left foot either to curl shots into the top corner or uh, play in, like we said, play in fullbacks, play the play either post. Having Veghorst does a few things for that. One, it creates a target for Anthony when he's in zone 14, uh, and, and everyone when he's in zone 14. Martial, if he kind of plays the way he usually does, he will often stand back and show for a sideways or backwards pass into that zone. Um, that doesn't That doesn't add anything because other players are available to do that anyways. The other thing it does is when Veghorst pushes out of zone 14, it forces the opposition defense to mark out of zone 14, which opens that area up for those attackers to do what they do. And that's what happened here, right? I think the goal might have been slightly inside the box, but 
Veghorst pushes the entire last line back with his run and then opens up that space in the middle for Erickson to play the ball in. Um, and I think it's really a simple mechanism. And I think it's super simple, right? You, I think the and, thing that people don't grasp about why Martial, why the, the, the run you described from Martial doesn't do this because it, it, it sounds like it should, right? It sounds like, you know, you get somebody wide left and then in, in our situation, the one that we're saying normatively is better. You have a striker go push the defensive line deep and then you have somebody else come into the, the area that's been vacated at the top of the box. But if you, if you, if you give it, if you look at it differently, you could, you could be convinced that, uh, well, why couldn't you just have, you know, a player in a crossing position, the striker comes deep and somebody else makes the run into, into, to drag the center backs deep. The reason that doesn't work in practice most of the time is that your striker is naturally going to be the highest player on the pitch to do this. So if your striker is the one who drags the defenders deep, the, the natural course of things when you're you know attacking is if the striker drags those players deep, you already have players following him. So they it, have to. It's a natural chronology. Um, like you're just gonna have midfielders behind your striker who are gonna follow into that space and be able to get shots off. If your striker comes deep, rather than forcing the the defenders uh, to to you know move in towards the face of goal. You have to wait for midfielders or wingers to make those runs in order for that space to be free for the striker. But by that point, you're going to have the opposition midfielders having tracked back to the space where your striker is. So it's, it's all about pace, really. It comes down to how quickly you can attack. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, um, we talked earlier a lot about how a big factor of what differentiates, you know, good passing midfielders from top ones is their ability to play without time and space. So I guess a corresponding idea is the way to make it easier for those players to play is to give them time and space, to create the time and space for them. And as an attacking team, you're, you're, the, the size of the pitch that you're playing is not the full pitch, right? It's the offside line, which is where the center backs are playing, the opposition center backs, and then behind that. And when you're in the final third, you're not looking to go back. You're looking to go forward. So what pushing the last line does is increases the amount of space that the opposition defense have to deal with. Like super simplistically, what we're doing is we're adding space that they now have to cope with. If you stand back and you crowd players in that zone, and this is something we United did a lot under Solskjaer, right? It was shots equals goals. You would get into zone, into zone 14 and fire shots. Um, the reason why that doesn't particularly work is not just because the shots are not of high quality. The shots are not of high quality because they're far, but they're also not of high quality because they're contested. They're marked. Um, having a striker who's going to, you know, stretch the last line, uh, and, and more importantly, do something different to what the rest of United's players like to do on the ball is going to allow them to do what they do because it's going to force the opposition to both deal with deal with Veghorst and deal with what Anthony, Bruno, Sancho, Rashford, and even Martial want to do. Um, and just having that scope of different things that you can do with your attack is going to lead to more goals, even if Veghorst isn't that good and continues to play what Kate described as 6.5 yeah. out of 10s, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, so I think we've hit on that. Um, 
one last thing, um, unless you have something else. A couple of people, you all, I'm sure by now know our friend John McKenzie, uh, who was on our last episode, um, and he tweeted the other day about how Arsenal have been running hot, um, how uh, they've been, they're lucky to have accumulated as many points as they have this season. Um, and we touched a little bit on this earlier today, but what the reason I, I bring this up uh, is because I think it's relevant to United as well. Arsenal have overwhelmingly outplayed their opponents in every match. So the fact that they've won almost every match they've played doesn't seem to be overperformance, right? It doesn't, if you look at it on surface level, you just think, you know, if you... In a given match, if you outplay your opponent, you're not lucky to win. And you're right. However, the reality of football um, and the fact that the ball is round is that if you play 30 matches and you outplay your opponent in all 30 and you win all 30, you've actually been lucky. Not you. It, not because you can identify any one given match and say you should have lost that one. It's because over the course of 30 matches, you should have gotten unlucky more often. And so how, how am I going to tie that back to United? United have overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly outplayed their opponents over these last 10 matches. They outplayed Palace today. Even with that mess of a second half, they were the better side. But... Even if you outplay your opponent in every match, you should be getting lucky at rather you should be getting unlucky at some point and dropping points that you deserve to win. And like, if you don't get unlucky at a certain point, then you've actually been lucky. I know that sounds wrong. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it, that's the reality of how it plays out. Yeah, I'm gonna. I personally think it makes more sense expressed in numbers than in, in words. Yeah, so I I'm tried gonna, to... I'm going to create yeah, an example please. here, right? Shot models. What shot models do is they ascribe a value to a team's attacking output based on the shots they create. And that's an imperfect idea, right? Shots are not the only attacking output that a team creates. But let's say we have a perfect idea, right? And the perfect idea is, you know, uh, 1.5 to 1 is the team's expected output based on something. Based on that, you will go and say, the team with 1.5 was better than the team with 1. And even if we make it, let's say, 3 and 1, right? A team that's vastly superior like Arsenal have been this season. 3 and 1. That team, by by probability simulations, if you simulate that probability a thousand times you'll find something like that team has a probability of winning 80% of the time, right? So a team that even though they outplayed the opposition by a vast amount, every single game, they have an 80% chance of winning. So if United outplay their opposition by a vast amount over a 10 game stretch, which I don't think United have outplayed their opposition by a vast amount. I think they have outplayed their opposition in almost every game here and they win 9 and draw 1 that seems like you know a 90% win rate despite a projected win rate that is likely much lower than that 
from the performances that they produced. Despite the fact that in no one individual match, you could isolate that match and say they were lucky in that specific match. They've been lucky in the aggregate, despite never having been individually lucky. It's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around, even if you understand these numbers. Yeah. So what that goes to say in terms of this entire discussion, right? Um, from the perspective of Arsenal, like Kay said, they have been the better team in nearly every match they've played this season. That does not mean that they have been win 18 out of 21 or whatever record it is they have games this season, even though they were better in pretty in at least 18 of the 21 matches. From United's perspective, same thing goes over this winning run, right? And this is something we've said. It's easy to get bullish about this team based on nine wins and one draw. But even though United have been the better team in nine games, um, things happen, right? And it's hard to think of it if you, if you like most of us watch United every week and then watch other teams like once every two, three weeks, right? If you watch United every week, over the last few years, what you'll have seen is United did not consistently outplay opposition and did not consistently win. So now you might be thinking United are consistently outplaying opposition, United consistently win. If you go back to the Ferguson days, United consistently outplayed their opposition every week. And if you look at the final Premier League table, you'll see they had, you know, 85 points, 90 points, sometimes even in the 70s, the treble season United were in the 70s. I think 1996-97 United won the league on 76 points, which yeah, for reference which is, is less than we won in 2017-18 with Mourinho, but it's just, it's just a fun fact. Yeah, in 99 they won everything and were in the 70s in points, which means that, you know, in around a third of their matches, I think at least, they didn't win, right? So being the better team is not the only, it's not like you're the better team. Therefore you win every game. Therefore you get what you deserve. You win the title. It's not that simple. Um, and that's why it's important to look at factors that govern the extent to which you are better than the other team. Um, because the larger, the margin by which you outcreate the opposition, the higher the probability that you're going to win even when you get unlucky. Um, and so, essentially, I think that's what still differentiates Arsenal and City. And looking at the rest of the season, <clears throat> Arsenal and City are outcreating opposition by more, even still. And so for United to compete with them, they should be looking to, therefore, control these matches better and increase the gap and output between them and the opposition. Um for what it's worth, yeah. over the last 11 matches, United's gap between themselves and their opposition on expected goals, which is just one model, is pretty similar to what City and Arsenal have done this season. However, the opposition's been weak in the aggregate. The st style of play of the opposition has been beneficial to the personnel that United have in the aggregate. And United have had some, you know, some nice game state go their way, like set piece goals breaking the deadlock early on. Wait, explain that a little bit more. Which part? Uh, game state. Why it's game beneficial state. for United's uh, XG. Yeah. So, um, if you score early, and this, this is not how it played out today against Palace, but this is how it should play out if you manage the game properly. 
If you score early, it should make it easier for you to create big chances later on in the match. Because the opposition is going to come on to you, they're going to put more numbers forward, and it should leave more space for you to score later on in the match. This is how it typically plays out in most matches. I'm making a really broad generality. I thought United were... United are best in drawing game states this season. Hold on. I am pulling up the James York viz. Which is a good thing. You actually, if you had to pick... I'm going to rant while I have Aaron distracted. If you had to pick... Hello, welcome to Case in the Details. If you had to pick between being really good when you're losing, being really good when you're drawing, or being really good when you're winning, you would pick being really good when you're drawing. And that's what United have been this season, in particular in this like 10-match run uh, where we've been playing well. Regardless, this was all part of just a, a larger point, which was... Yes, Aaron's nodding his head, admitting defeat. Um, all of this is just part of a larger point, which is to say, today sucked. Drawing sucks when you feel like you should have won. United lost their cool in the second half. They could have done a much better job of controlling the match. These things happen, and you know what? They, they happen even to good teams who play perfectly. So overwhelmingly we should still be positive. Um, this is a good team that's getting better. And it had a blip that we've been waiting for. Aaron and I have been talking about this since we started playing well. We're just doomsdayers. We were waiting for this, and eventually it happened. So, For the record, I just want to clarify. Case, before this episode said, let's get this over with. I I'm did. pissed off. I did. That's a direct <laughs> quote. Um. So we weren't waiting for it, but we were anticipating it. Um, and and every good team is and should be anticipating slip ups. Um, so the last you know forty minutes are ways in which United can be less affected by those slip ups, and ways in which United can become more resilient, such that over a season these slip ups happen less often, which is what leads to winning trophies. And on that note, I think we're good. We'll see you next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.